following message was recorded live at Three Strands Church. We hope it will bless you, encourage you, and challenge you in your journey of faith. We'd love to pray for you or answer any questions you have. Message us at threestrands.church slash contact. We're glad you're here. Uh, we are in part three of this series that we've called Playing Games. And uh, if you were here the past two weeks, you know, or if you weren't here, week one we, we talked about greed losing the game Monopoly, and last week we talked about forgiveness, using the game Sorry, and as you can see today, uh, we're going to talk about the game Risk. Any of you ever played Risk before? A few of you? Okay. Well, this is not one of my favorite games because I'm awful at it, just to be honest. Uh, Carson loves it, though. He, he likes to dominate old dad in all these board games that I used to dominate him in uh, when I was a kid, but those of you who have played the game Risk... Uh, you, you know that what you do is you establish some territory that's going to be yours, and then you have to gather some resources to protect the boundaries of your territory. But inevitably, there's the temptation in this game to expand be, beyond what you have and take what you don't have. And that's where the risk comes in. Will you risk what you have in order to take something that you don't have? That's, that's the question. Well, there's a guy in the Bible who literally played the game of risk with his life. And we're just going to read it and jump right in here this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 2. It says, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And he looked out over the city and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty and she was taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. I want us to focus in on a simple pattern here from these few verses. If you'll notice as we looked at those scriptures there, that David first saw Bathsheba, and then he desired Bathsheba, and then finally, David took Bathsheba. That's the pattern. And it didn't seem to matter to him that this was Uriah's wife, one of David's best soldiers. It didn't matter to him that, that Uriah at the time was out fighting David's battles to further the boundaries of David's kingdom while David was inside relaxing, taking a, an afternoon siesta, you know. Despite the fact that as king, David could have had any woman that he wanted. Still, he saw her, he desired her, and then he took her. And what David was thinking is, hey, this will just be kind of like a one-night stand, you know, an afternoon of pleasure, and nobody's going to find out about it. But it turned into chaos when Bathsheba let David know, I'm pregnant. And so David went into this detailed cover-up scheme, those of you who know this story, which failed twice. And so after plans A and B didn't work, he resorts to plan C, where he had his so-called friend Uriah murdered. And you've heard the phrase that if you have friends like that, who needs enemies, right? So he had his so-called friend murdered. This was the very man who had sworn to give his life to protect David. Now, for those of you who grew up in Sunday school and you know only the Sunday school version of King David, you may be wondering how such a good man could end up doing something like this. 
I mean, I've never heard anything bad about King David. Wasn't he some great biblical hero, you know? I mean, isn't this the same guy who God said was a man after my own heart? I mean, where did this murderer's heart come from? It just seems a little out of sorts. Well, when we learn a little more about David's life, which we're going to do in September, we're going to take uh, teaching through an entire series called Highlight Reel, highlighting the life of King David later on this year. But, um, but anyway, when you learn more about his life, we begin to see that this was a common pattern in his life. In fact, what David did here in this moment is what he had been doing for many, many years. You see, at this point in his life, he had at least seven wives And if you notice the pattern, he would see women, he'd desire them, and then he would take them. It was a pattern of risk that turned very, very deadly for him. You know, a simple concept from this story that we need to apply to our lives is this. What we feed grows and what we starve dies. Please don't miss that. What you and I feed will grow in our lives And what we starve dies. And so for David, instead of feeding and nurturing marriage with one woman, he fed his lust and and sexual desires for multiple women over the course of his lifetime. And it's a pattern that leads to death in more ways than one. And you know, that's probably why one day when Jesus was preaching to this huge crowd gathered on this hillside in Matthew chapter 5, when he preached probably his most famous sermon, he did not dismiss the crowd that day without addressing this topic of lust. I want you to hear what he said in Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. So you can picture it in your mind's eye. He's got this huge crowd sitting on the side of a hill, and he says this. He says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with what? Lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so if your eye, even your good eye, he says, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. I mean, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. We read that and we're like, holy guacamole, Batman. You know, goodness gracious, this is serious. What is he talking about? I mean, come on, that sounds a little bit extreme, doesn't it? Well, listen, another take-home lesson. Extreme circumstances call for extreme measures. Extreme circumstances call for extreme measures. That's why he uses such graphic terms when he's making his point here. Now listen, he's not saying to literally cut off your hand and gouge out your eye or we would all be walking around, you know, blind and maimed. But his point is to take our sin seriously because it will destroy us if it goes unchecked. And a man had to die for that sin. Jesus had to die for it, so let's take it serious. You remember the story of that hiker a few years ago named Aaron Ralston? I think his his picture's up on the screen there, yeah. He he was hiking, and then he falls into a canyon, and he dislodged a boulder that pinned his arm against the canyon wall. Remember that? And as detailed in the book written about him, 127 hours later, he realized that he had to amputate his own arm if he wanted to live. 
Golly. And you think about that. I mean, I was reading the story this week. Like, why did he do it? Why did he do that? Because extreme circumstances call for extreme measures. His life depended on it. He had to. He didn't have a choice. And so listen, why does Jesus seem to think that lust is somehow equal to something like this? I mean, is Jesus just old-fashioned? Is he just out to keep you and I from having fun? I mean, why does Jesus even care about, you know, thought crime? After all, that's all lust is, right? Just thought crime? Is it? I mean, is, is lust really a victimless crime? Let's be honest. Lust is supply and demand. It's the, the demand that people, in particular women, and in today's sick, messed up, twisted world, even children, become the supply for. If you want to see a good movie, go watch The Sound of Freedom. Heather and I watched it yesterday about child trafficking. It'll teach you a whole lot about this topic. But it's the demand that people um, become the supply for. Think about that. Think about that. Por pornography, it objectifies, it enslaves, it dehumanizes, and it demeans people, and it, and it gives way to the law of diminishing returns. And listen, there's never been a better example other than David's son, Solomon. Some of you are familiar with him. Solomon was known as being the wealthiest man who ever walked the face of the earth. And apart from Jesus, he was also the wisest. So he had two things on his side when it came to experimenting with things. He had the mental capability, and he also had the financial ability to pull off just about anything that he set his mind to. And you know, it's kind of difficult for us to even really understand who Solomon was and the power that he had back in this day. Because we would probably have to combine a bunch of people to come up with like Solomon. People like You'd have to combine like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Bob Dylan. And then you would have to make him like the president, the prime minister, and the pope all at the same time to get Solomon. I mean, the power that he had, I mean, it just led to him to this very simple philosophy that drove a significant portion of his life. And that philosophy was this. More is better. That's what Solomon thought. More is better in everything at all times. Because Solomon didn't do anything halfway. Everything he did was to the nth degree, especially when it came to women, sex, and lust. And if you know his story, you know that he had hundreds of wives and, and concubines. Not porcupines, but concubines, okay? Which was a, you know, a concubine was a wife or, or sexual partner of secondary status, kind of. You know, he, he had unrestrained, think about this, unrestrained access to as many women as he wanted anytime he wanted. I mean, instant access to instant gratification. In other words, Solomon had the internet several thousand years in advance. Long before Hugh Hefner or internet pornography arrived on the scene, there was Solomon living this stuff out, which, which our society terms as sexual freedom. That's what they call this. Solomon was the poster child for this kind of lifestyle, 
which means he must have died the happiest man of all time, right? I mean, wasn't he the most fulfilled human to ever walk the face of the earth? No fantasy denied, no experience he could not enjoy. And yet at the end of his life, this is the way he summed it up in his journal in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 17, when he said, so I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. He said, but I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this, it's like chasing the wind. You ever chase the wind? If so, did you catch it? It is a useless pursuit that will leave us empty-handed. That's the metaphor he's making here. You see, Solomon took a good thing called sexual desire, and he perverted it. He twisted it into full-flamed, unrestrained lust. And listen, when we allow sexual desire to have no boundaries, that's what it becomes, perverse. Solomon thought this would satisfy him, but he came up empty-handed. And then he said in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has planted eternity in the hearts of men. Eternity. The translation is that our hearts ache for something eternal. But we tend to give in to this idea that maybe we can satisfy this eternal ache in our hearts with, with something temporary. Surely that'll fill the void. Guys, listen, sexual desire is a good thing. But when turned into an ultimate thing, it becomes a destructive thing called lust. But before we continue, let's make sure we understand what lust even is. Lust is the process of feeding and nurturing misplaced sexual desires. The process of feeding and nurturing misplaced sexual desires. Listen, there is an actual place for sexual desire to be expressed, nurtured, and fed. And listen, it's called marriage between one man and one woman. Anything that we can imagine outside of that, listen, it's settling for death instead of life, according to Jesus. I didn't write the Bible, I just read it. Okay, I'm just the messenger, but I'm telling you, if you call yourself a Christian, he is supposed to be our Lord, which means he dictates what's right and wrong, not you and I, not our culture, only him. And guys, pornography, it's an obvious way of feeding misplaced desires, but, but it's not the only way. What about reconnecting with someone on social media that, that you once had a sexual relationship with and now you're both married to someone else and yet you message them and you begin replaying old tapes in your mind? Those messages may look innocent on the surface, but you know that they're not. And we could go on and on with examples and, and you know, you might be tempted to think that Jesus is just old-fashioned, but, but here's what you can't say about Jesus. That he was wrong. You can't say he was wrong unless you want to ignore the mountain of evidence that shows the further that we have gotten away from God's plan, the more disorder and the more dysfunction we currently have in our lives and our culture in this area, don't we? I mean, in other words, the more we depart from the simplicity, from the beauty and the order of God's design for sex and marriage, the more we will experience chaos and confusion. 
Guys, there's just no other way around it. Look around. Just look around. And just like David and Solomon believed a lie, so do we at times. We believe a lie. We, we believe that the lifestyle they chased after, it would be heaven on earth. But it's not true. It's the opposite. I mean, what we have done, culturally speaking, in America, we have sown to the wind, and we're currently reaping the whirlwind. That's what's going on when you look around. I mean, it feels like our country more and more is attempting to reject God's authority and just turning their noses up at him. Does it not feel like that? Mary Calderon was the first president and co-founder of the Sexuality and Information Council of the United States back in the 1960s. In short, the beginning of sex education in public schools. And this is what she had to say back then in the 60s. She said, a new stage of evolution is breaking across the horizon and the task of educators is to prepare children to step into that new world. To do this, they must pry children away from old views and values, especially from biblical and other traditional forms of sexual morality. Religious rules and laws about sex were made on the basis of ignorance. Translation, parents can't be trusted to teach their children about sex, so schools should do it. Jesus is ignorant, the Bible archaic, and Christians are stupid. That's what she's saying. Now, we might not like that, but we need to ask the question, was she wrong about what happened? Was she wrong about what has happened? Another way to ask it is this way. As a nation, are we moving closer to Mary Calderon's vision of human sexuality, or are we moving closer to Jesus' vision? And I think if we're honest, I mean, the answer is relatively obvious in our country. We are living right smack dab in the middle of Mary Calderon's vision of what she thought would be good for human sexuality. So if she was right, that means that we should be living like really happy in this new brave world of sexual utopia, right? That's what should be happening. So let's just ask the question. Are we more fulfilled? Are we living more ordered lives? Are we more free in this area? Let me give you some statistics to help you think through that. 50% of America's single population aren't seeking to be in a relationship with anyone. Generation Z, ages 11 through 26, has been called the most lonely generation by social scientists. The marriage and birth rates are at the lowest point in our nation's history. And all of that combined within 2019, 5 billion hours of pornography was watched on one website alone, which is the equivalent of 500,000 years of time. Reality has been substituted with fantasy, and many people see no problem with this whatsoever. It's been destigmatized in many ways, but one of the most notable ways is through the language. Have you noticed that? Always pay close attention to the language and how terms are being redefined, right? Terms like marriage, terms like love. 
So, so no longer is it called prostitution. It's simply called sex work. And we have government officials saying that this is legitimate work. And on top of that, we, we have a formula playing out right before our very eyes. And the formula goes like this. Sexual desire plus delayed marriage. And what happens when we combine those two things is that we have men and women who are waiting until their early 30s to get married, which means their peak sexual years are not being spent in monogamous marriages, having children, and building a family. No, those years are being spent nurturing lust and moving from one sexual partner to another, or they're being consumed by pornography or both. Now, with that being said, it's important to hear that marriage is not the cure for lust, but it is the best context to express sexual desire. Marriage is not the solution. Jesus is the solution. But marriage is the gift that God gives us to meet this need. Guys, just look around our culture. I know you know what I'm talking about. Our culture is full of sexual disorder and dysfunction. And can I just ask you, who do you think loves this the most? Who loves this the most? Satan does. Satan does. Because his goal is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so if you really want to know who's behind all of this disorder and dysfunction, it's Satan himself. Sat there watching that movie yesterday about child trafficking. That's all I could think about. This is Satan. He's behind it all. Just look around at the damage he's causing our culture in this area that we're talking about today. Guys, we need Jesus to redeem us. And so he speaks. He, he speaks these words into the chaos of our culture. Listen to him when he says this in John 10.10. 10. He said, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but not my purpose. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Guys, Jesus is not some cruel drill sergeant that's up in heaven with a whistle saying, are y'all having any fun down there? Well, cut it out. That's not who he is. If you're here today, or you're listening to the podcast this week, and you are young and unmarried, I want to speak some truth into you today. Truth that you might not hear anywhere else. Please listen. The simplicity of marriage, sex, family, and children is one of God's greatest gifts, and it is worth pursuing at an early age. I know you hear a different message all around you, but evaluate those messages. This idea that you should take a decade of your life and chase after your own self-interest before you get married What's that saying? I mean, it's saying to take 10 years of your life and practice being selfish before you enter into this covenant in life that will demand you to be the most selfless you've ever had to be. It's saying to practice being self-centered before entering into this relationship where you have to demonstrate self-sacrifice on a daily basis. Does that make any sense to you at all? Guys, listen, you won't magically become a selfless, self-sacrificing person the day you get married if all you've been doing is practicing living for yourself. 
It just won't happen. So please hear me. It is possible to have a good, healthy, wonderful marriage with children that you would die for and to have a family and a home and to chase after that. Many people in this room would tell you it's worth it. It's worth it. I'll tell you, it's worth it. I love my wife and kids. But what the world is offering you is chaos, confusion, and death. That's what the world's offering you. What Jesus is offering you is clarity and peace and life. That's what he wants for you. And one other thing for you teenagers and young adults. Listen, the idea that you need to spend your teenage years and your 20s trying to find someone that you're sexually compatible with, that is the stupidest thing that I've ever heard. There are some basic biological truths that our culture is trying to deny, and, and how this ever became controversial just blows my mind. God made us and designed us with the clear intention of sexual compatibility. Compatibility. It, it, you don't have to take biology very long to realize that. And so let's go back to this game we're talking about called Risk. And let's ask some brutally honest questions. So whether you're in the room and you've been married for 50 years or 50 days, let's ask some tough questions. You ready? How much of your resources are being spent on protecting your marriage? Either the one that you're in now or in the one that you hope to have someday if you're single. How much? How much risk are you taking to protect your marriage? Are you in relationships with people from your past that you've had a romantic history with or that you're being tempted to kind of reconnect with? If you struggle with lust and pornography, having the internet in your pocket, okay, with no accountability or no software to protect you, that's not wise. How about this? Is the presence of social media in your life, is that worth sacrificing your marriage for? Now, social media is not bad. It's neutral. But don't let a good thing take the place of a God thing. Is Netflix feeding your lust and sexual desires? If so, Jesus used way more extreme language than to simply cancel it than to deal with lust. Do you know people who end up committing adultery? None of this happens by accident. It's just a slow fade where lust is harbored, nurtured, secretly fed way long before that physical act ever occurs. Because we've said it, what we feed grows and what we starve dies. I remember hearing about a pastor years ago who had committed adultery and his church just couldn't believe it. They were blown away. And they asked him, how could you do it? And I remember what he said. He said, well, I've done it a thousand times in my mind, acting it out. Well, that was the easy part. What we feed grows and what we starve dies. Listen, today could be a good day for some of you. It could. Any day that we step from darkness into light, that's a good day. 
We need to learn from the mistakes of other people. We need to learn from the sins of other people. We don't have enough time to make them all ourselves. And besides, who wants to experience all the pain that comes along um, with, with consequences of poor decisions and sinful habits? But guys, please hear me. God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow, he says. The day that you decide to stop living in shame and insecurity, that's a good day. The day you decide to stop feeding the very things that are killing you, that's a good day. The day day that you decide to put your hope and trust, not listen, not in how your spouse might respond to you, but in how Jesus will respond to you, that's a good day. The day that you decide to to actually approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace in your time of need, that's a good, good day. Because, guys, listen, that's the day your redemption story will take off. Today could be that day. Do you know there's a bigger redemption story that God's been telling for a long, long time? Since that first couple looked at him and said, you know what, God? No thanks. We'll do it our way. Ever since then, God has been in the business of taking broken people in broken circumstances and making them whole again. That's what he does. And listen, we're about to close, but I I know what we've talked about today. I know it's painful for some of you. There may be some tension right now just sitting there in some of you from the Holy Spirit, and that's okay. I know this topic can bring up a lot of pain, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, and a lot of regret. And I know when you've failed so many times before, then it can feel almost pointless to try again, and it's so easy to feel defeated. And guys, that's why we're so thankful for the cross around here, because we've all been there. We're thankful for the cross, the place where he became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus paid for our sins on that cross. And the depth of God's grace, listen, far exceeds the depth of our sins. Will you receive that today? Will you just accept that today? I want to close by allowing these scriptures, the word of God, just to wash over us. And as I'm reading this, the band can come up. But but just think about this from Romans 8, verse 31 through 39. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave up but gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. 
No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What an amazing challenge from God's Word for all of us. We hope you will start putting everything you've learned in this session into practice. And be sure to subscribe to the 3SC Podcast so you'll never miss any new content. Thanks for listening.